It's a great privilege to uh, be able to share with you today and uh, oh, hope you can all hear me okay up the back. Yep, wonderful, wonderful. And uh, I just want to say um, thank you to Jeremy, wherever he is, for those uh, wonderful words around the communion table. That was most appropriate. And of course, the whole of our gospel message goes right back to Genesis, doesn't it? And uh, I, I just felt that after Jeremy had shared that this morning that maybe I should just now go home because uh, <laughs> it's all been done. <laughs> but it was, uh, I just want to thank you for that, that very beautiful time that we had this morning around the Lord's table. I had the great privilege a couple of years ago now of uh, sharing in the ministry school of a large church in Sydney about Genesis and its link to the gospel. And I was given two Tuesday nights. And after the first night, a couple came to me and they said, look, all this stuff that you're sharing, Mark, is all very interesting, but all people need is an encounter with Jesus. Now, of course, they're right, because without an encounter with Jesus, nothing changes in the heart, does it? Because it's that encounter that leads to people being born again and receiving his Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, they obviously hadn't linked the, the uh, Genesis account with the gospel message, so I was a little bit disappointed. Uh, other people did, and so I was encouraged by that. But the next week, this couple turned up early. Let's call them Bill and Sally. And they came in with great big smiles on their faces, and they said, guess what happened to us? Now, it turns out that Bill and Sally ran a scripture class at the local high school. It was a state high school. And uh, they'd said to the class, look, this is the last week of term and we're coming into the vacation period. Hands up anyone here who would like us to pray for you that you have an encounter with Jesus during the holiday break. Nobody moved. And then a hand went up at the back and a young lady asked, I, I don't get it. What's all this stuff about Adam and Eve? Were they real people? Now, it's my practice always to set homework in these classes from our Creation Answers book. I'll tell you more about this later. And Sally had diligently done her homework. And so she said, oh, I can answer that. And so she explained all about Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. And then another hand went up. And a young man said, so what's this story about a bloke and a boat with all these animals? Was that real? And so Sally, who had done her homework, said, oh, I can answer that. And so she explained about Noah and the flood and God's judgment on the earth. You know, the whole of that lesson was taken up with questions that came from the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Then the period drew to an end and uh, so they said, look, I know it's uh, holiday time now. Put your hand up if you'd like us to pray for you that you have an encounter with Jesus during the holiday break. Friends, every single hand went up except for one. So what had happened during that lesson? You see, those young people had come to understand that what they had been taught about Christianity was not just some philosophical idea, some religious construct, but it was actually based on truth, on reality tangible things that we see in the world around us and it made such a profound difference and that's why I represent Creation Ministries International because my own walk as a young man was rather similar. I actually became a Christian when I was just 10 years old 
It was actually at a Billy Graham crusade in 1959. Anybody go to a Billy Graham crusade in 59? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I can always find a few it seems. Now you know how old I am, but beside that, I grew up in a denomination which didn't have a very high view of scripture. So I just assumed that God must have used evolution to create. It seemed to make sense, but I didn't understand my own faith. And it wasn't until after I'd finished my postgraduate work that I really came to understand the truth of Genesis and how it linked to the gospel. And that's why I do what I do today, because understanding that is so profound and so liberating in our faith. You see, we all know that our culture tells a very different story, doesn't it? Our culture tells us that the universe came about through accidental processes over millions and millions of years. And through the action of things like natural selection, ultimately all the living organisms that we see in the world today came about. Now this story is what we could call evolution, or if you like, capital E, evolution. And what I mean by that is it's a story that tries to explain the existence of the entire universe in purely natural terms. Now that sounds okay, particularly if you're studying the sciences, but if you think about it, if you limit yourself to purely naturalistic explanations for everything, what you're actually doing is excluding right at the outset and arbitrarily the prospect of a supernatural explanation for the universe. So if you exclude the supernatural, it's the same as saying there is no God. Now, that's rarely ever spelt out, rarely ever written, but nonetheless it lies at the basis of the whole of the evolutionary story. You see, if we try to explain the universe without God, it's actually atheism. So evolution, if you like, is atheism dressed up in a lab coat. It comes with all the authority of the scientific establishment and not surprisingly, because it's taught all the way through primary, secondary, university and even TV documentaries keep reinforcing this message of millions of years. So not surprisingly, pretty much everyone in our culture believes that it's true. Why not? Except for the fact, of course, that in the opening chapters of God's word, we discover that God is the creator of the universe. Sometimes when we talk to people, other Christians, they say, look, why does this issue even matter? I mean, aren't Christians just called upon to share the gospel? Why get involved in this complicated subject of origins? I mean, it's got lots of science in it and people, I'm, I'm not a trained scientist, they say. How can I stand against what is taught and what is believed? Aren't we just simply to share Jesus? I want to share this quote with, a, uh, with you from a man who wrote to us that I think really explains why it matters so much. This man said, I was raised in the church until my teens before rejecting it and declaring myself an agnostic, atheist agnostic. The creation evolution issue was the number one sticking point for me. How could I possibly believe the Bible if it was wrong from the very start? And that's a good point, isn't it? You see, the Bible makes truth claims that require us to respond to them, to commit our lives to the Lord or to reject or whatever. But how do we do that if we're not even sure that it's true? If it's wrong at the beginning, maybe it's wrong somewhere else. Maybe where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, maybe that bit's wrong. But worse still, how do you figure out which bits are right and which bits are wrong? 
You know, there was a survey done of young people in New South Wales scripture classes and three of the top four questions were these. How can I know that God exists? If we keep telling our young people that the universe made itself by accident, how can they know there is a loving God? How can I believe in a good God when there is so much suffering? Has anyone here ever been asked that question or have you wondered about that? Yep. It's a good question, isn't it? It's probably the number one excuse people give for rejecting Christianity. Now, when I was growing up, I couldn't answer that question because I had a very confused understanding of our origins. And in fact, without understanding Genesis as actual history, I don't believe that question has a, an intelligible answer. And the third question is this. Doesn't evolution prove that God doesn't exist? Whilst we're on surveys in the US, this survey showed that up to 70% of young people brought up in a Christian home and in the church will walk away from their faith after they leave home. 70%. That is a stunning number, isn't it? What a disaster. As I travel around and speak in many different churches, I find an absence of young people. And it's no wonder because our culture is undermining the gospel message and the truth of God's word. Now you would get different numbers um, depending on which denomination you surveyed and what country and here are some other numbers, but they're all terrible. So you see, we need to be prepared as a church to give answers to the challenges that are being made by our culture against the Christian faith. Now if you were like me about this time last year or last July, I was glued to the TV set each evening to see what was going to happen to that group of Thai young people, the soccer team, trapped deep in the cave. You remember that incident? Wasn't it an extraordinary story as it slowly unfolded and every single one of them was saved? What an extraordinary outcome. Well, there was a man called Richard Harris who was at home here in Australia. He received a phone call and they said, we need you in Thailand. Now, interestingly enough, they didn't call me. I'll probably assume they didn't call any of you either. <laughs> you see, they called Dr. Richard Harris because he's an anaesthetist, he's a trained Navy SEAL diver, and he's had extensive experience in cave rescue techniques. In other words, he was prepared to be able to contribute valuably to that whole rescue effort. And you might know that he was the last person to leave that cave network. He's, of course, the Australian of the Year this year, an honour which he shares with his colleague, Dr Craig Challen. But you see, friends, every single Christian is actually called upon to be a prepared rescuer. You know, it says in 1 Peter 3.15, to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but to do it with gentleness and respect. Now, friends, I could not do this as a young man. I don't mean the gentleness and respect bit. I mean I couldn't answer my own questions, let alone the questions that others might have of me. So that's why our ministry exists. It's all about equipping people with answers to the challenges, encouraging them to believe God's word from the beginning, and we find repeatedly that equipped and encouraged people are empowered to share their faith. And uh, I'll tell you some uh, about some of our resources. The Creation magazine is perhaps the most vital. 
you'll find examples of it out there. Uh, but a lot of the illustrations I'm going to use this morning come from past issues of Creation Magazine. We also have a website, and this is what the front page looks like. There's a search window up the top there, which gives you access to over 11,000 different articles and items of interest that are all aimed at encouraging you in your faith. And there's a, a lead article on the front page every day. And we try to get something up there as soon as possible after significant events occur. This particular article on that terrible massacre in New Zealand was up just a few days later. How do we as Christians respond to such terrible events? Now, one of the really good things about our ministry is that it has a very easy web address to remember. However, I found that if you say something at the same time as seeing it, it helps to imprint it into your memory. So I want you to say the web address with me when it comes up onto the screen. So is everybody ready for that? Okay, if you want to know anything about creation, you just go to... How easy is that? Now, we also have a free email newsletter service which we send out to our subscribers if ever something occurs or some information we need, we believe they would benefit from hearing about. For instance, there was an article on our website asking a very pertinent question. Were dinosaurs on the ark? We're going to talk about dinosaurs a bit later on. And uh, there were links to other articles as well. Now, on your seats there, as uh, Pastor Gary mentioned, you'll find one of these little leaflets. And uh, it's on the back is uh, some curious factoid that can really only be answered from a biblical point of view. And you'll find a space on the back where you can put your name and email address and uh, your postcode. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, not another email. But let me encourage you because this is a great way to get a digest of the key articles that have come in the last few weeks. Only comes out about every one or two weeks. We don't spam your inbox. But uh, if there's something happening in your area, then we can let you know about it. The first email you get will be a free video download of a talk from our website. Now in a moment I'm going to uh, ask our volunteers who support our ministry here in Melbourne to come around and they'll be waving one of these in their hands. Uh, just fill out that item on the back and they'll come and collect them from you. But uh, so while you're doing that, let me talk on this subject of going where the evidence leads. Now we're often told that Christians believe things in spite of or in the absence of evidence. Often people say to me, oh look, I believe in science. What they mean is, I believe in the evolutionary story of origins, I don't believe in the Bible and in Christianity. But I think that in fact the Christian has actually got all the evidence and that the atheistic evolutionist has indeed very little. And I want to share that with you this morning. So here's a question for you. Is your faith supported by evidence? Now, I know, of course, that it takes faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that step of faith, in fact, which leads to us being born again. I know that we have to believe by faith what happened right at the very beginning, our origins, because we weren't there to observe it. But God in his grace and mercy provides us with much supporting evidence. You see, our faith as Christians is not a blind faith. It's a reasonable and it's a defensible faith. 
So I want to use two images. This first one of this, uh, this little girl taking a tentative step into a pond or a lake there and she can see the ground just under the water. So she knows she's not going to fall into a huge hole. But nonetheless, it still takes a little bit of faith, doesn't it, to take that step. But all the evidence is that she's going to be okay. And I want to use this image to depict a leap of faith. So you just hope that this young man has checked that there are no rocks there or the water's deep enough. So this would be believing in something in the absence of evidence or in spite of the evidence, a leap of faith. Now I had the great privilege of working for some 30 or so years in the design of all of Australia's national satellites. I'm sure you'd have seen those little grey dishes on rooftops pointing up at the satellites, you know the ones I mean? And they get things like Foxtel, Ostar, ABC, SBS, the commercial TV networks, pay TV and so on. Now I want you to understand that I have absolutely nothing to do with the content that comes over the satellites, alright? Just as long as you understand that. But I did have a lot to do with the design of these spacecraft. And uh, so the sort of science that I was involved in is what you could call operational or experimental science. Now that's the kind of science which is based on observable, repeatable experiments. And it's that kind of science which gives us all the amazing technological gadgets that we just take for granted these days, like mobile phones and computers and projectors and all this amazing stuff. It's all based on observable, repeatable experiments. But there's another form of science which we could call historical science. Now historical science is when the scientist looks at evidence in the present, like this guy looking at the rock, and he discovers in there a fragment of bone and some teeth, and he makes up a story about the past to explain what he's observing in the present. Now something interesting happens, and if you think about it it's inevitable, when he makes up a story about its origins, it's influenced by what he believes about its origins. So in this case, the guy looks at this, these fragments of bone and he thinks to himself, maybe it had a skull like that, could be right. But he went on and assumed that this animal was in fact a missing link between land mammals and later sea mammals. And uh, we, now we didn't just make that picture up, it actually came from a technical journal. They called it Pachycetus, which just means a whale found in Pakistan. And they had very confident words about it. They said, in time and in its morphology, which means its shape, Pachycetus is perfectly intermediate. Wow, a missing link between earlier land mammals and later full-fledged whales. Very confident assertion, isn't it? Now remember what they had found. Just a fragment of the skull and a few teeth. Now it turns out, about seven years later, they found a full skeleton of Pachycetus and now they think he looks like this. So I hope you can see that it's very different from what they so confidently asserted just a few years earlier. You see, when you get more data, there's less room for the imagination. And our imaginations, of course, reflect what we believe. Now, every single transitional form that is offered, and by the way, the current set in our educational programs are different from the ones that I grew up with, but they are all like this. They're based on limited fragments of evidence and lots and lots of imagination reflecting the beliefs of the scientist. Now, National Geographic had a go at explaining how a land mammal might become a sea mammal. 
And uh, so on the left we have a cow and on the right we have a whale and, and these kind of transitional forms, which, by the way, have absolutely no fossil evidence whatsoever. You see, the evolutionary story has it that life arose in the oceans and we came up onto the land and got legs and lungs and other things and then over millions of years evolved into mammals and, and then the land mammals went back into the sea. But it is difficult to imagine how a land mammal might go back into the sea as a sea mammal, and unless of course it was something like this. <laughs> so let's just summarise that. Experimental science is about the present, it's about observations and it's about repeatable observations. But historical science is about the unobserved and unrepeatable past. And friends, it's only in this area of historical science that any conflict takes place between science and the Bible. And no wonder, because it's a conflict between two belief systems. One that begins by assuming there's no God and building a whole explanatory framework on that assumption. And the other that begins by assuming, of course, there is a God and he's revealed himself to us in his word. And we base our understanding of the world on those assumptions. So here's the problem. How do we find out the truth about our origins? See, we can't go back, can we, in time to observe what happened. So what we need is an eyewitness, someone obviously who is there, who knows everything, who loves us, who would not deceive us or lie to us, and who has written down everything we need to know about our origins. And friends, we have exactly that in this book, the Bible. You see, the Bible is like a history book of the universe. Of course, it's more than just that, but it is at least that. So when there are historical passages, we can believe them entirely. And you know, it's interesting, the very first verse is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first verse places the Christian in conflict with the culture in which we live. So I want to look at a couple of different aspects of science and different disciplines. And this is the planet on which I live. A little while ago I had a youth group and I must admit I wondered whether they came from the same planet. But anyway, um, it was in the discipline of geology that this idea of the vast antiquity of the earth first arose. And it happened like this. If we look at some uh, a structure, I suppose this is the, uh, the, the postcard, I suppose, image of geology, right? All those layers and layers of rock in the Grand Canyon. There's an assumption about how to interpret the evidence. And the assumption is called uniformitarianism. And it says that the present is the key to the past. So we observe slow, gradual processes today and so the argument goes that each of these layers would have been laid down by some kind of a flood or a, a disaster and then sometime later another flood would have laid down another layer and then another layer and so on, building up all that material so that all of those layers must have taken, according to that philosophy, a vast period of time. And then along comes the Colorado River and proceeds to carve out the whole of the Grand Canyon. Once again, it must have taken millions and millions of years. So there we have it. The evidence is clear, isn't it? But friends, let's take a closer look at those layers. And here's the Coconino sandstone on the top. And you'll see there's a very sharply defined boundary between that and the layer underneath called the Hermit Formation. Now that 
uniformitarian story would have it that there is a 10 million year gap between the Hermit Formation and the Coconino Sandstone on the top. So let's think about that. That means the Hermit Formation lay there with a flat top for 10 million years. But wouldn't you expect to see some evidence of elapsed time? For instance, there would be signs of vegetation, tree roots, animal burrows, and certainly the next time it rained, you'd expect to find evidence of erosion, creeks, rivers, valleys, and so on. But do you know for the hundreds of kilometres that that contact is exposed, there's no evidence of erosion anywhere. What it actually tells us is that those layers were laid down rapidly, one after the other, with very little, if any, elapsed time between them. It actually speaks of a rapid, catastrophic process, and we find that kind of signature globally. But have we ever observed something which led to layers and layers of rock being formed? Well, actually, we have. Back in 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted in Washington State. And it wasn't a very big volcano, as volcanoes go, but it changed the geology around the base of the mountain, including the formation of this structure called Little Grand Canyon. Now, this is about uh, 1 40th the size of the real Grand Canyon. It's about 40 to 45 metres deep. But in the walls, can you see these layers of rock? And down the bottom, we have this little river flowing. So if you applied that uniformitarian, the present is the key to the past philosophy, you would conclude that that structure must have taken many, many years to form. Layer after layer, slowly building all that material up, and then the little river carves out a canyon one fortieth the size of the real Grand Canyon. But friends, none of that material was even there before 1980. How do we know? Well, we observed it to happen. Remember what science is about? It's about observation. And then two years after the eruption, there was a great mud flow through that area and it carved out Little Grand Canyon in just one day. That's all it took. One fortieth the size of the real Grand Canyon. So has there ever been, in recorded history, a global catastrophic event which could have left behind this kind of signature? Well, of course, we read about it in Genesis 6, 7 and 8, the global flood of Noah. And the Bible says all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. So it says not just that there was 40 days and 40 nights of rain, but the springs of the great deep burst forth, most likely volcanic eruptions. And we read the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. Now sometimes people say, well, look, these um, nomadic Jews just saw a flood in the Mesopotamian River Valley and, and so they thought, oh, such a great flood and they wrote about it as though it was a global flood. But friends, if God had inspired those words, which I believe he has, Look at what it says. All the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. It speaks of a global event. How could that possibly be a local flood? Unless, of course, it was something like that, which is clearly ridiculous, isn't it? It was manifestly a global catastrophe described in Genesis 6, 7 and 8. And sometimes people say, ah, yes, but where did all the water go? You know all those gotcha type questions that people come up with? 
Well, interestingly, with the aid of Google Earth, you can zoom back from the planet. And here we are looking down over the Pacific. You can see a little bit of Australia here and the west coast of the US. There's a lot of water out there. In fact, if you were to take the ocean basins and raise them and the continents and lower them so that the Earth was a perfect sphere, like a billiard ball, then the waters of the oceans would cover the Earth to a depth of nearly 3,000 metres. That is a lot of water, more than sufficient to cover the then known Earth, just like the Bible says. You know, everywhere we go, we find evidence of a global watery catastrophe. Just south of Sydney at Ostermere Beach, this rock face is there and you can see some sedimentary rock under here, some volcanic ash, a coal bearing deposit, more ash, more coal, more ash, more coal and so on. It speaks of a watery disaster punctuated by volcanic eruptions. A very violent event took place. We find tree trunks running through multiple layers of rock. If each of those layers took thousands of years to form, the tree trunk would have long since rotted away. What it really speaks of is a catastrophic process with rapid emplacement of that tree as the layers were formed around it almost instantaneously, all at the same time. I want to play you a short video clip from a DVD we produced a couple of years ago now called Evolution's Achilles Heels. And in this video clip, we show some of the amazing mountain formations which have come about as a result of the flood of Noah. But there are some things about modern mountain belts that we see that don't seem to fit with this conventional view. Rock is brittle. It doesn't bend very easily. If you try and bend it, it breaks. Now, granted, on a big scale, you might be able to get some pretty big bends out of a large rock. But these bends are tight and close, and you can walk from one end of them to the other. This type of bend and folding without breaking the brittle rock uh, means that maybe it wasn't brittle rock at the time of its formation. These might have been much softer materials. After all, they were laid down during Noah's flood. They'd been compacted down, started off horizontal, but then as the tectonic movements occurred, they shifted and folded them while they were probably still soft. So when we look at it this way, what we realize is that the really tall mountain chains, the Alps, the Rockies, the Himalayas, they didn't exist before the flood. The whole reason that they exist is because of the flood. Basically, when we look at the geology of the Earth, we find that present processes do not explain what we see. Rather, what we see points to catastrophic processes in the past, and when we think about what those could be, it fits exactly with the account in Genesis of Noah's flood, which destroyed the whole Earth. So friends, I think it's actually a leap of faith to believe that the that gradual processes shaped the major geological features of our Earth. But what a tiny little step of faith to believe that it was the result of the global flood of Noah. You know, the Bible gives us some very clear timeline in, in information. We have here a, uh, a, a chart showing the genealogies all the way from Adam through to the time of Jesus. That top line is called the chronogenealogies. It takes us from 
Adam right through to the time of Abraham. And it gives, the scriptures give, the age of the father when the son next in line was born. So that's as tight as a drum with no missing bits at all. And Abraham was born about 2,000 years after the creation. And then from Abraham through to King David and via the line of Mary and then the line of Joseph to the time of Jesus is about another 2,000 years. So on that chart is something like 4,000 years of elapsed time. Of course, from the time of Jesus to the present day is about 2,000 years. So that means, according to the Bible, not my idea, here we stand today about 6,000 years after the creation. Wow, 6,000. I mean, we hear so much about the millions and billions, don't we? You think, how could you possibly believe that? But friends, if it was true, and I believe it is, you would expect to find evidence everywhere of a young age for the earth. And you know what? There is heaps of evidence. I want to just share a few with you quickly and then direct you to some other of our resources. But the problem is you don't hear about these in the high school curricula or the universities or on the TV documentaries. The air that we breathe consists of a number of gases, one of which is helium. Now helium is that party gas that people put in balloons, you know, and if you get a mouthful of it, it makes your voice sound funny. Who's done that? Anyone tried that? <laughs> yeah. I've never been game, actually. Helium turns out to be constantly supplied into our atmosphere through radioactive decay processes in the Earth's crust. Some of it actually manages to escape, but there's a net rate at which it is accumulating. So knowing that rate and knowing how much is in the atmosphere, we can calculate an upper limit for the time it would have taken to accumulate. And it would all have got there in less than two million years. Now friends, that's a disaster for the evolutionary story, isn't it? Because that's nowhere near long enough for the age of the atmosphere to permit evolution to have taken place. But it sounds as though it's too long for the, the biblical account of just thousands of years. But it actually isn't a problem because we don't know what the original concentration of helium was or even if the rate of production has been a constant over the years. The river systems around the world dump about 20 billion tonnes of mud and sediment into the ocean floor every single year. The average depth is about 400 metres so we know how much sediment is on the ocean floor, how fast it's being added so once again we can place an upper limit this time on the age of the oceans. And all of that would have got there in less than 12 million years. So once again, we have a disastrous result for evolution, don't we? Because evolution believes that the oceans are at least 3,000 million years old, not just 12. But once again, isn't that a problem for the Bible's time scale of just thousands of years? So can anybody think of some mechanism in the past that might have dumped billions of tonnes of mud and sediment onto the ocean floor. Anyone? The flood, exactly. I'm glad you got that, otherwise I'd have to start again. No, just kidding. <laughs> you know, even when we look into our solar system and the stars, we see so much evidence for a young solar system. Just last year, astronomers discovered 12 extra moons orbiting the planet Jupiter. There are now 79 observed moons orbiting Jupiter. But they're a bit complicated. There's a group that are close in 
that are orbiting in the same direction as which Jupiter rotates. They're called prograde. But there's a whole bunch out here that orbit Jupiter in the wrong direction. They're called retrograde. Now, I say wrong because it's completely unexpected. The story about the origin of the solar system is this swirling cloud of dust and gas that you keep hearing repeated. But that would mean that all the moons should orbit in the same direction, not a whole bunch going backwards. But this is where it gets really interesting because there is one shown in this green line that is prograde in the middle of all the retrograde moons. Now think about this. Imagine you're driving down the freeway and you decide that you're going to cross over onto the other side. How long do you think you're going to last? <laughs> Won't work, will it? And in fact, the astronomers were astonished. They said this is an unstable situation. Head-on collisions would quickly break apart and grind the objects down to dust. You see, Jupiter's moons can't be millions and millions of years old. They simply wouldn't be there if that was so. The population of the world today is around 7.5 billion people. Do you know if you start with Shem, Ham and Japheth and their wives, just six people, and let that population grow over 4,500 years at the rate of just under half a percent, you get about 7.5 billion people. So the population of the world today is consistent with the Bible's time scale, but completely inconsistent with the evolutionary story, which claims that mankind has been here for at least 100,000 years or even longer. Friends, if that was true, where are all the people? We should be shoulder to shoulder on every square metre of the planet's surface, including the ocean basins, and then some. But it's not like that, is it? There is so much more I could share here. There's a great article on our website called The Age of the Earth, and it lists 101 ways we can place an upper limit on the age of the Earth and the universe, all of them inconsistent with the evolutionary story. Now, it's not that there are only 101, it's just that that sounded like a good number and we've got a stack in reserve. And you can find that at creation.com forward slash age. So I think it's actually a leap of faith to believe that the Earth is billions of years old. Why? Because the evidence does not support that view. But what a tiny step of faith to believe that the Earth is just thousands and not billions of years old. Now in the fossil record we discover all kinds of amazing creatures including dinosaurs and but you know the fossils do not have little tags attached to them to say how old they are right now I mean we all know that what the scientists actually have are the fossils themselves and that's what you would call operational science because they can observe the physical and chemical properties and do experiments on those samples but when they make pronouncements about the age, that's an interpretation of the data. That's historical science. And remember, historical science engages the beliefs of the scientist. So what did happen to the dinosaurs? Now, because the scientific community by and large rejects the history book of the universe, they've had to come up with various suggestions about what might have happened. And some of those are quite fantastic. I don't have time to go through those this morning, but it's interesting to see what the Bible says happened to the dinosaurs. And you might be thinking, well, does the Bible even mention them? Well, actually it does, and let me show you how. On the sixth day of creation, the Bible says that God made all the land-dwelling creatures. 
Well, dinosaurs dwelt on the land, so that must include them, right? It also says that God made man, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. So from those two statements, we can draw a logical conclusion. Is anybody here able to tell me what can we conclude from those two statements? Anyone? Dinosaurs and man must have lived together, right? That's what the Bible plainly teaches. Now, not many people believe that in our culture, do they? We're told that the dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago, but not according to the Bible. And then the Bible tells us that a pair of all kinds of creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. Logical conclusion, there must have been two of every kind of dinosaur on board the ark. And every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Only Noah and those with him on the ark survived. So logically, therefore, all the dinosaurs, not on the ark, drowned in the flood. So there really was a global catastrophe that wiped out the population of the dinosaurs. And we read about it in Genesis 6, 7 and 8. Now, when you go to museums these days, you often see the dinosaurs reconstructed in their standing position so we can see how big they really were. Now, they weren't all big. Some were really only the size of chickens, but the big ones were really big. But what I think is interesting is to look at the exhibits that show how they found the dinosaurs. Now, Jenny and I had the great uh, privilege of visiting the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Canada last year. And there we saw a number of exhibits of dinosaurs in the positions in which they were found. And here's an example. It's called the epistatonic posture. That's a great word, by the way. You should learn it up. Next time you're at a party, you can impress your friends. So long as you're not in this position, of course. But what it means is the neck is bent back, the legs and tail are extended and outstretched, it's the position that an animal adopts under acute oxygen deprivation immediately prior to death through suffocation or drowning. And it's so common, it's called the dinosaur death throes position. I'm not sure if that's me or what, what's happening there, but anyway, I'll keep going. <laughs> it's so common, it's called the dinosaur death throes position. And paleontologists are perplexed. Why are so many dinosaurs in this position? Friends, if they just went to the history book of the universe, they would know, wouldn't they? Here's another one called a Gorgosaurus. There he is, mouth open, neck arched back, legs tucked up in this case, the tail extended. And here is a T-Rex, a huge creature. This exhibit is called Black Beauty. Classic epistatonic posture, mouth open, neck arched, tail extended. You see, that is, and if you look closely, you'll just see is my wife down in the bottom corner there to give you a sense of the scale. This is a large animal. Now, friends, if you took a truckload of sediment and dumped it on the top of a T-Rex, what would happen? He would just shake himself free, wouldn't he, and then walk away. So what catastrophe was required to bury this huge creature, trap it in the rock so that it suffocated and died? You see, that's exactly consistent with what you would expect to find if the account in Genesis of Noah's flood was actually true. But then it gets more interesting because in Genesis chapter 8, it tells us that 
all the animals and all the creatures came out of the ark, one kind after another. Logical conclusion, two of every kind of dinosaur must have survived the flood. Wow. I guess the ones that did would have been pretty happy, right? Well, is there any evidence about when the dinosaurs died out? Well, there is some fascinating evidence. A paleontologist called Mary Schweitzer was examining a T-Rex bone and she found that it had red blood cells inside. And she was amazed and said it was exactly like looking at a slice of modern bone, but of course I couldn't believe it. I said to the lab technician, the bones after all are 65 million years old. Now how does she know that? Well friends, that's what she has been taught, so not unreasonably that's what she believes. But right in front of her very eyes is evidence that tells her that that could not be true. And she asks this very pertinent question, how could blood cells survive that long? Because, friends, they can't. Haemoglobin is a very complicated molecule. It breaks down quite quickly. Blood cells cannot survive anything like 65 million years. Now, some years later, she uh, reported again in Science Journal. This time they'd found the femur, that's the thigh bone, of a T-Rex. The bone was so big they couldn't fit it in their helicopter. They cut the bone in two and discovered that it had soft tissue inside which was flexible and resilient and when stretched returned to its original shape. Mary Schweitzer was amazed. She said, this is not something I ever dreamed I would see. Now it's not just Mary Schweitzer finding soft tissue in dinosaur bones. Other scientists have found proteins and bone collagen and even fragments of intact DNA. And about some hundred now uh, secular technical papers have been released reporting these finds. Now because this had such a profound impact, 60 Minutes interviewed Mary Schweitzer. And I want to play you a short extract from that interview. But there's something that they do not challenge and a question that they do not ask in this interview. And I want to see if you can work out what it is that they ignore. What happened next happened by mistake. Mary put some fragments of the bone in acid to dissolve away the outermost layer of mineral. But the acid worked too fast and all the mineral dissolved away. Being a fossil, there should have been nothing left, but there was, and it was elastic, like living tissue. This is the piece. <gasps> no. She showed us video she took under the microscope. That's really what happened? Yes. That's the dinosaur yeah. bone? Without mineral now. That's what was left. It looked like the soft tissue she would have expected to find if it had been modern bone. This was impossible. This bone was 68 million years old. So you see this and you think, what? You I say, didn't want to tell anybody. <laughs> You'd be ridiculed, yes. right? And so I, I said to my technician, okay, do it again. I don't believe it. And yet, in sample after sample, they were there. Things that looked suspiciously like flexible, transparent blood vessels. She finally mustered the courage to tell Jack. She said she dissolved the bone away and there were blood vessels. And, you know, I was like, shocked. 
I mean, how could that be? How could that be? That's right. The things Mary was finding inside dinosaur bones, look at that, blood vessels, and even what seemed to be intact cells, pose a radical challenge to the existing rules of science, that organic material can't possibly survive even a million years, let alone 68 million. So what is it that they don't challenge? What question do they not ask? Did anybody pick it up? Anyone? What don't they, what don't they challenge? Exactly. They don't challenge the age of the fossils, do they? They're 68 million years. And yet, you heard them say, this is impossible. And then they continue straight on and say, well, it's 68 million years. They will not allow themselves to question the millions of years. Now, why do you think that is? You see, friends, if the millions of years are not true, there hasn't been enough time for evolution to take place. And if evolution hasn't happened, what are we left with? A creator God. You see, people don't want there to be a creator God because we might be called to account to that God for how we have lived our lives. So they'll never go there. The millions of years are in fact a die-in-the-ditch issue for the evolutionists. They cannot move away from the vast, deep time. Now, it's interesting that in many of the people groups around the world, there are legends and stories about encounters between huge beasts that are normally called dragons and people. For instance, St. George and the dragon. And uh, the ancient Chinese divided their calendar into a cycle of 12 years and they named them after common, ordinary, everyday animals like the ox, the tiger, the rabbit, and in the middle of them all comes a dragon. So why would the ancient Chinese have used 11 common, ordinary, everyday animals and then inserted a mythical one? I think far more likely they really had encountered huge beasts that they called dragons. Here in Cambodia at Ta Prom, this temple was uh, reclaimed from the jungle and they, there are a lot of uh, stone carvings around it, including this one of an animal with bony plates on its back. Now, when we look at an animal like that, we would recognise it as some variety of stegosaur. But friends, when that was being carved some centuries ago, there were no paleontologists around to tell these people that the animal they were carving was actually extinct. I'll let you think about that. What they carved is what they saw, exactly. Jenny and I had the privilege of going to the city of Carlisle in northern England, and there in Carlisle Cathedral is the tomb of a guy called Bishop Bell. Surrounding his tomb is a brass inlay, and on that brass inlay are etched the images of various common, ordinary, everyday animals, like this eel, a fish, there's a dog with a collar, and uh, a bird, and in the middle of them all are these two creatures with intertwined necks and what appear to be bony protrusions on their tails. Now, we would recognise those creatures today as sauropod dinosaurs. Now, for many years, when sauropods were reconstructed in museums, they had their tails on the ground. But then as paleontologists examined the skeletons more, they realised that in fact, the sauropods held their tails aloft. Isn't it interesting? 
that these um, craftsmen showed the tails being held aloft. I think that means they really had seen such creatures. And that's just over 500 years ago in northern England. We had an article about them in our creation magazine. We called that article uh, Carlisle, sorry, concealed under Carlisle Cathedral's carpet dinosaurs. So what happened to those dinosaurs that came off the ark? Well, I imagine many of them would have been hunted into extinction. They would have been dangerous animals, the big ones, and also a great source of food. In fact, in The Guardian early this year, there was an article showing that essentially all of the large animals on our planet today are endangered because of the activities of mankind. So I think we can make a very strong case that the dinosaurs of history are actually one and the same as the dragons of legend. So folks, I think it's a huge leap of faith to believe that the dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago because the evidence does not support that view. Observable scientific evidence. But what a tiny step of faith to believe that the dinosaurs died in the flood but two of each kind survived. You know, we're told in the scriptures that we are to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And I want to suggest to you today that belief in evolution is probably the greatest pretension that actually stops people from coming to know God. Why? Because if evolution is true, it means the universe made itself by accident over billions of years. You see, how can you come to a God whom you're not even sure even exists. That's why this is such an important issue for the church today in proclaiming the gospel in our secular age. And, well, how do we then demolish these arguments? Well, we can't all become scientists, but that's where our ministry comes into effect because our heart is to equip the church with resources which have answers to the challenges. You don't have to know them all, but you need to know that there are answers and where to go to find them. I mentioned at the beginning the Creation magazine, and uh, this is, I guess, our flagship publication, and it's an amazing witnessing weapon. You know, if you receive Creation magazine, you'll be able to answer your children's questions about evolution and origins, or your grandchildren's questions. You, um, in, in fact, in our own family, we raised our four children uh, on a pretty good dosage of Creation magazine and the scriptures, of course. And I know it's by the grace of God, but all four of them are now walking with the Lord. Now, with every single copy, print edition, you can also get a digital subscription to the magazine. And uh, that enables you to share that issue of the magazine with up to five different devices. You know, we get so many testimonies from people whose lives have been impacted by the magazine. This guy wrote to us and said that he was converted when someone gave him a copy of Creation magazine. Isn't that amazing? Someone just gave him a copy and now he's in the kingdom. But I love what he did next. Then it says, I subscribe for five of my relatives. Four of them have now come to the Lord. Isn't that awesome? Now, I can't help but do the numbers. That tells me that he has an 80% success rate in his evangelism efforts. Who would like 80% success rate? <laughs> Perhaps I should ask, who already here subscribes to Creation Magazine? Yep, quite a few of you. That's great. Well, for those who don't, let me tell you a bit more about it. You can subscribe for one or three years. 
as I mentioned, if you give us your email address, you, can, you will also receive a digital subscription which can then be readily shared, parents with your children or grandparents with your grandchildren. Now, if you subscribe today for one year, we'll give you this back issue of the magazine as a free gift. So you get something to read and take away with you and then hopefully to give to somebody else. But in addition to that, we'll give you this cardboard sleeved DVD called Creation, The Key to Dynamic Witnessing. Now, just for today, we're also making available a copy of this little booklet, The Genesis Flood. It's just a, a small booklet, but it's got some wonderful information in it about the flood. So for a one-year subscription, you'll get the back issue, the small DVD, and that little booklet. But if you subscribe for three years, you'll get those three things, plus the DVD on geology, rapid rocks, and this one on biology. Um, so you've got some wonderful resources and materials now to share with other people. And you know, that's the essence of our ministry, it's getting the message out. So we generate the materials, but we want you to share that with your friends, with family, with your workmates. Um, leave the magazine in waiting rooms. Lots of people do that, your dentists or doctors. Give them to your neighbours. It's a great outreach. And of course, if you're already a subscriber, then you can give a gift subscription to somebody else. Now, the uh, folks at the resource tables there will have a form like this. Just make sure you fill that out. There's a panel down there to give a gift subscription if that's what you would like to do. And if you're an existing subscriber, and there are quite a few of you here today, you can extend your subscription today and we'll just put it on the, on the end of your existing one and that will entitle you to the free gifts that I mentioned. If you purchase just one book today, I would encourage you to purchase this one, the Creation Answers book consists of 20 short chapters that address the most asked questions that Christians and non-Christians alike have. Things like, does God exist? Uh, where did all the water go after the flood? We touched on that one. And the classic question that comes time and again, where did Cain get his wife? This is a great little booklet. How did we get our Bible? You know, as Christians, we need to be able to answer that question. Is it the word of God? How do we know the Bible is the correct holy book? And this is a new release called Deep, The Deep Time Deception. It's an excellent book and I heartily uh, recommend it to you. That's the good news. The bad news is that we haven't got any, but we will take orders for it and uh, we'll send them to you post-free. A great book on our amazing solar system collected from articles from past issues of Creation magazine. There's lots of children's material there, and children, including the children's pack, and uh, this book on exploring geology with Mr. Hibb. And we have a variety of DVDs, including this, the key issues pack, eight DVDs that address the key aspects of this origins debate, and that is less than half price. And of course, don't forget that amazing website of ours. So friends, let me try and wrap all this up. The evolutionary story has millions and millions of years of death and struggle and suffering before mankind. So that places death before Adam. But the Bible, of course, has it the other way around, doesn't it? It says it was Adam's actions in the garden that led to death and suffering coming into the world. And that is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 
You see, the reason that Jesus even came was because of Adam's sin. As we celebrated the communion earlier this morning, you see, it was Adam's rebellion that brought death and suffering into the world. God didn't make the world a mess. He made it perfectly. We are the ones who broke it. But that's why Jesus, in the greatest act of love this universe has ever seen, came to this earth, paid the price for our sins so that we could go free. So friends, as we proclaim Jesus into this lost and dying world, remember, he is first and foremost the creator of the universe, the perfect sinless sacrifice for our sins. But he is now seated at right hand of God the Father, interceding for each and every one of us. And friends, he's the bridegroom seated at that wedding feast to which every one of us has been invited. So I want to encourage you this morning to go where the evidence leads because, friends, it all points by God's grace to the truth of his word and, of course, to the person of Jesus. So thank you very much, but um, we've got a few minutes, so uh, 